Hi, and welcome to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, the Director of Special Investigations for Free Russia Foundation. And today I am joined by my colleague, Vladimir Karamaza. Uh, and we are here to talk about actually some late breaking news into a case involving himself. As many of you may know, he uh, was poisoned while traveling through Russia, not just once, but twice, the first time in 2015, the second time in 2017. And just this week, he and his attorneys have been given some news from the FBI, which had investigated the case, but had sort of run into a brick wall or simply went silent, I guess. I mean, I'm, I'm going to let uh, Vladimir explain what happened and the sort of course of this investigation. But Vladimir, first of all, welcome. And I'm wondering if you could just sort of give us an explanation. Let's start with what you just learned this week, and then maybe we can get into sort of the history and backstory of what happened to you five years ago. Uh, hello, Michael. It's uh, very good to be on your podcast, and I hope we get to do this in real life someday. I'm yeah, growing really tired of all of this online living. But uh, look, the backstory is uh, is very simple. Uh, as you just sort of outlined it very succinctly, I was poisoned on two different occasions in May of 2015 and in February of 2017, both times uh, in Moscow, both times I was in a coma with a multiple organ failure. Uh, and both times doctors had told my wife that I had about a 5% chance to survive. So uh, I can't even express in words how grateful I feel to be able to sit here and speak with you now. Uh, mm. The official diagnosis that was given to me uh, at the Moscow hospital was an I quote, toxic effect by an unidentified substance, end of quote, which translated from medical jargon into plain human language means poisoning, and they don't know with what. It's very clear that this was something very strong and very sophisticated. It's not some stuff you can go and buy in a pharmacy. It must have been a highly controlled substance, presumably similar to the type that Alexei Navalny was just poisoned with in, in August of this year, just given the effect and the very low chances of survival. But of course, I wanted to know what it was. Well, first for medical reasons, of course, because, you know, that some something like this doesn't go without after effects. Poisonings, of course, I'll have some lasting health effects for the rest of my life. And so it would be nice to know what substance it was, how it affected the different organs, what, if anything, I need to do about this. But another important reason, and to be honest, as important, if not even more important, is to try to pierce through this fake plausible deniability that the Kremlin hides behind every time something like this happens. Because of course, as you know, I was by no means the first case. There has been a long and growing list of people, political opponents, independent journalists, anti-corruption campaigners, defectors, and who faced attacks by poison, attempted murders mm. by poison, or actual murders by poison. And every time something like this happens, the Kremlin tries to come up with, quote, unquote, an alternative explanation. That's the classic disinformation tactics, to try to muddy the waters by throwing out these crazy alternative theories. And the idea behind this, of course, as you know, once you have a hundred reasons out there in a the public discussion, you have no reason. That's what's behind the thinking, I'm guessing. And every time, of course, another Kremlin opponent is poisoned, they sort of shrug their shoulders and say, why are you blaming us? You know, maybe they ate something wrong or drank too much or they had an illness. The first explanation or the counter explanation was that there's some kind of forbidding combination of antidepressants and nasal spray and alcohol, right? First, I was saying it was a combination between uh, medicines and alcohol. Then I said right. it was too much alcohol, uh, even though, of course, I was taken with poisons while at a work meeting in the middle of the day. So, uh, I, I mean, I, I, I don't abuse alcohol generally at, at any point in my life, but certainly not at a work meeting in the middle of the afternoon. But that, yeah, you're right. That was what they tried to put out, just as they do every single time. When Yuri Shekachikhin died a horrible death in Moscow in July of 2003, an opposition member of parliament, an investigative journalist who worked on corruption issues, you know, his, his organs failed one after another. His, the skin peeled off his body in a matter yeah. of a week. It was, it was just absolutely horrendous. Uh, his colleagues at Novaya Gazeta have absolutely no doubt this was deliberate poisoning. The official re reason given by the Russian authorities was Lyle syndrome, which is an extremely rare allergic reaction that affects, and I checked this out, it affects one person in a million. I think our viewers can make their own conclusions as to the likelihood of that. Anna Politkovska, of course, two years before she was shot dead in Moscow, 
ago, she was poisoned while on her way to covering the Beslan terrorist siege. Yeah. When she was poisoned, the official reason announced was that she had a strong viral infection. Uh, Viktor Yushchenko, the then Ukrainian presidential candidate, was poisoned in the midst of the 2004 election campaign when he was sort of the uh, figurehead of the anti-Kremlin forces in Ukraine at that time. You can still see the effects of that poisoning on his face it's to this day. Figured, yeah. Thankfully, he survived. The Kremlin propaganda said that he ate bad sushi. And then the second reason was, uh, or reason, quote unquote, was that it was a botched cosmetic surgery. I mean, this happens every single time. With Litvinenko, it was that he was himself trading in polonium and accidentally right. swallowed it. With me, as you said, it was a combination of medicines and alcohol. With Alexei Navalny, it was actually a, a list of different things. First, it was low blood sugar. There was problems with digestive system. Then also alcohol, actually, as well. They said that he had too much alcohol, that he took some medicine. Actually, they don't even bother with making up these new versions. They just use the list they have, I presume. And, and they even to, to maximize the trolling effect, Andrei Lugovoy, who's now an MP or a, a Duma delegate and the guy who was accused by the British government of poisoning Litvinenko comes out and says, well, Navalny can only have been poisoned with Novichuk in Germany. So they're getting a, an assassin and a poisoner himself right. to count traffic in these conspiracy theories. Of course. And, and they all do this. And I mean, Mr. Peskov, Putin's press secretary, whose full-time job it is to lie every single day. I mean, he's been telling out different versions too. So that was the reason that I wanted the FBI lab, which is supposed to have a really good toxicological lab uh, in Quantico, Virginia, to test my yeah. blood samples and to see what the results would be. And I say I wanted, that's not technically true. I was in a coma when all of this was happening, but my wife managed to get the blood and urine samples from very early on, from day one of hospitalization. Right. And she took it to the United States, to Washington, and gave it to the FBI for testing at that toxicology lab. Now, they didn't have to do anything. I'm not an American citizen, but many friends on Capitol Hill in both parties, Republican and Democrat, asked them to do this for these very reasons. Right. Senator John McCain, when he wrote his request to the FBI Director Christopher Ray, who's still FBI Director today, uh, Senator McCain wrote, and I was really struck by that phrase when I reread that letter just the other day, he said that determining, publicly determining the cause of this poisoning would help protect not just Vladimir's life and safety, but also the life and safety of other Russian mm. dissidents. And just look at how many cases happened since then, since 2017. And of course, you had the Skrupal case in the UK, you had Pyotr Verzilov in Russia, now you had Alexei Navalny, who thankfully survived as well. Still nothing from the FBI, three years on. So they took the samples, they did the testing, maybe found something, we don't know. Uh, and then they refused to give those results, first of all, to me. Mm -hmm. We're talking about my blood here, right? I just feel the need to remind, they refused to give those results to me. They refused to give them to members of Congress, including Senator McCain and others who, who would ask for them. They refused to hand them out as part of my Freedom of Information Act request. They refused to give them to journalists under the Freedom of Information Act request because Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty and others made their own separate FOIA requests for those results. They didn't get them either. Earlier this year, in February, I was left with no other choice but to go to court against the U.S. Department of Justice through my American lawyers in Washington, D.C. I'm fortunate and deeply grateful to have Stephen Rademacher, former Assistant Secretary of State in the Bush administration, who's one of the top Washington lawyers, who's leading this case completely pro bono as public mm -hmm. service. He's leading this case uh, on my behalf. And, uh, you know, many of my friends um, back home in Moscow in the Russian opposition are laughing that, you know, the first Russian politician to go to court against the U.S. government, you know, it wasn't Zhirinovsky or Zyuganov or Rogozin, it was Vladimir Karimorza, but I, I really did have no other choice after they've been stonewalling us for three years. And so in February, we went to court. It's the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia. That's where the Justice Department is, obviously. And so this has been going on since then, of course, with delays because of the pandemic and, and everything else. So now we are seven months into this lawsuit. Back in the summer, the Justice Department provided information to the court that they've identified about 400 pages of documents 
relating to my poisonings. And then the deadline set for the initial release was September the 15th. And this is where the first batch of documents that you referred to come from. And then the final release date was supposed to be October the 15th. But just a few days ago, the Justice Department wrote to the court saying that they've identified an additional 1,100 pages of documents relating to my poisonings. And those actually concern the lab work and the test results. And just let me remind you and, and our viewers, that's what I needed in the first place. And we made this clear from the very beginning, right. initially from the requests back in 2017, but certainly in the FOIA request in 2018 and in a lawsuit on February of this year, that the thing we need most out of those hundreds of pages of documents are the lab work and the test results. Right. And suddenly they find them at the last moment. And of course, now they're requesting an extension. And a joint status report that was filed with the court this week says that the Department of Justice is requesting an extension for the final deadline for the release of those most important documents, which concern lab test results until November the 16th. So more than a month more than the original deadline would have been. I mean, there are a few interesting things in the first batch of documents too. For example, we now know for certain that my case was discussed at the meeting in January 2018 between the heads of the US and the Russian secret services. So mm -hmm. when Bortnikov of the FSB and the Rishkin of the SVR and Korobov of the GRU visited Washington DC in January of 2018 and met with the heads of the CIA, FBI and Pentagon intelligence, I mean, a lot of people had assumed that my case was discussed. Now we know it for sure because that's mm -hmm. in the documents in the first batch of FBI documents that we got. There's also mention of the Livermore, of the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in California that specializes, among other things, in chemical weapons research. And supposedly my blood was sent there for testing too, but no results, as you saw from the story from RFERL that analyzed these documents, that first batch of documents, no results in this first batch. And that's what they want to delay until November the 16th now. So would you say that the stuff that was released now, it, it's mostly, I don't want to use the word smokescreen, but it, it's the, the marginal documentation from your case, the, the, the real gravamon of what you need, the lab work, any kind of allegation of who the perpetrator or perpetrators might have been, any kind of uh, allegation of a, a tie or connection to the Russian state security services in your case. All of this stuff is likely, if it's contained anywhere in these 1,100 pages, which will only come to you after the U.S. presidential election, which may or may not be a coincidence that they're being held. That's one of the first things American journalists are noticing. I mean, it's not for right. me to comment. It looks like you have enough Russians meddling into American politics. I don't want to be one more, so it's not for me. But it would, it would just be plain stating the fact that the original right. release date would have been before the U.S. election and the new release date is now. But yeah, no, I think you're right. I, I'm not going to say the first batch of documents is useless because it isn't. Uh, so we do know for a fact now that the Quantico lab was involved in the testing, that the Livermore lab in California was involved in the testing. We do know that my case was brought up at the meeting between the U.S. and Russian service chiefs in Washington. By the way, the meeting was requested by one of the Russian visitors. They redacted out the name. We do know mm. which one specifically was Bortnikov, Narishkin, or Korobov, actually, to answer your question about the which specific service it was, right? Because there were three of them represented. Of course, they redacted out that name. Mm. But we do know that there was a meeting request from the Russian side. FBI Director Ray's name is not redacted. You can see it in documents. So we do know it was a meeting with him. And the subject of that email reads, Kara Moore's a case status. So we know what the meeting was about as well. We just don't know which one of the three was from the Russian side. So it's it's not nothing. Right. As you saw, there was this pretty big story in RFERL, which they did as a result of this first batch of documents. But again, the thing I needed the most from the very beginning was lab test results, the determination of the cause of the poisoning, what the German military lab did in the case of Alexei Navalny straight away and very publicly. The FBI Quantico lab wasn't the only one to test your nail files, your blood, your tissue, whatever else you gave them. There, were, there was other lab work, private institutions that did this, right? After your first poisoning, your samples were sent elsewhere. What was the conclusion of these other laboratories as to how you succumbed? What was the, the agent that was used? Did they name anything or did they put it, couch it in, in sort of a family of, of possible toxins or nerves agents? I mean, how was it handled? 
So you're exactly right. After the first poisoning, the 2015, there was a private lab in Strasbourg, France, analyzed the samples. Those samples were not very good because my wife initially was not given those samples. She only got them on day three or four, by which time, of course, quite a lot of time has elapsed. So these samples were not the best, unlike the second ones on the second case, because from 2017, the samples were literally from day one. This was not the case two years earlier. But even with those samples, this lab in France found unexplained high over-concentration of heavy metals, several heavy metals uh, in the blood, which does not give us the specific substance to answer your question. It only gives confirmation that there had been some sort of external intervention. I mean, that was obvious anyway, but that was confirmed by the lab. Nothing specific, no substance. And uh, well, let's see what's in those 1100 pages that we will get. And based on the assessment of the, the laboratories in both of your poisoning uh, instances and your doctors, is it believed that it was the same substance used both times or was it a different substance used in 2017 from 2015? Because I, I, I remember reading upon the second event that you were saved much more quickly because you were suffering from the same or similar symptoms as you had the original time. So in other words, was this the same, as best we can guess, was it the same toxic substance that was used to poison you twice? The most important reason for the time difference between the first and second time, and you're absolutely right. I mean, the first mm -hmm. time I was in a coma much longer. I was in hospital much longer. I was in hospital for a month and a half in 2015. Only three weeks in 2017. It was only a coma for six days, I believe, in the second time. The reason for that is because it was the same doctor, Dr. Denis Protenko, who actually now happens to be in charge of the COVID response in Moscow. He was the one who saved my life twice. And of course, the second time he knew exactly what to do because the symptoms had been identical. To answer your question, yes, presumably the substance was the same or similar because the symptoms were very similar. The first symptom I, I remember both times is extremely frightening when you're trying to take in a breath and you cannot, when you're suffocating, you, can, you cannot breathe. That's the way it began both times. And when they brought me to him the second time, he called my wife and said, it's exactly the same thing. And he was the one who gave me this diagnosis, toxic effect by an unidentified substance. The first time I was shuffled from hospital to hospital around Moscow, they couldn't work out what was happening because the way this toxin works, it goes and affects different organs at different times. So they initially thought it was the heart, then they thought it was the liver, then they thought it was the kidneys. That's that's how this thing works. And only on day three, I was actually brought to this doctor, to Dr. Protenko, who said, no, it's a general problem. It's not specific with the organs. And so he was the one who gave the diagnosis. And by the way, that's now been released because some of those internal medical documents from Russia are also included. Their mm -hmm. translations are included in the FBI documents and you saw mention of that in the RFERL story. Did, yeah. That was the original diagnosis the first time as well. So whatever nonsense was being spread publicly about the combination of medicines and alcohol, that's not the actual diagnosis that was given. The actual diagnosis was toxic effect by an unidentified substance. You mentioned that you're, you're, you're planning to go back to Moscow, your earliest convenience, um, given pandemic strictures and all that. And this is something that has now come up in Navalny's case, his intent to, once he's able, and, and I think he has been released from the hospital in Germany, he's going to go back too. A lot of people listening to this, in your case especially, you were poisoned twice within the space of two years, are wondering, are you nuts? Like, is this not enough of a sign or a warning that your life is in, in jeopardy by just by walking the streets in Russia? I know you're a Russian politician. I know this is your cause. You know, your life's work is in this. But um, given what you have suffered, and not only you, but your, your wife and your children watching you go through this agonized ordeal, not once, but twice, is it worth the risk? in your view? Well, you know, I think it was last week or maybe 10 days now or so when Alexei Navalny announced as soon as he basically got back into state of conscience, he announced that he will be going back home to Russia as soon as he can. And and I was swamped with calls from Western journalists saying, oh, there is this new story today. How will you comment on it? And I asked him, what's the new story? I told you on day one when he was poisoned that of course he will go back to Russia as soon as mm. he's physically able to. It could not have been otherwise. 
I did exactly the same thing both times after after both poisonings. As soon as I was able to literally walk again, I mean, I had to learn to walk again after the first time because it was just once you're in a coma for such a long time, it really takes a lot of time and effort then to recover. And it will for Alexei now as well. So there will be time and patience involved in this, but he will recover and he will go back. And I went back as soon as I was able to both after the 2015 and 2017 poisoning. And it could not have been otherwise as well. I'm a Russian politician. You cannot be in politics and not be in the country. And more importantly, I think the Kremlin would want nothing better than for all of us, for those of us who are in the opposition in Russia, just to give up and run away. They would love for this to happen. I mean, even it's even in small messages. Like every time I return to Moscow and I go through passport control at the airport, I'm a Russian citizen coming to my own country. I spend about 25 minutes standing in front of the officer in that booth because he or she would, you know, call somewhere, look at the computer. I would actually be really interested to see what they have on that computer screen. Of course, I can't because it's turned the other way. They go and speak to someone. They go and report somewhere. Of course, they let me in because they, how can they not? <laughs> Again, mm -hmm. it's a Russian citizen returning to Russia. Every time I fly out, it's five seconds, put a stamp, get out of here. Well, you know what? We're not going to. Dictatorships don't defeat themselves. Autocracies do not fall themselves. It takes work. It takes effort. And, you know, if everybody was only concerned about their personal safety, history would never move ahead. I don't even know how to answer your question because that's not a question for me. It could not have even been otherwise. My family is abroad for safety reasons. That's the only tangible precaution I could take, and I did, and, and my wife and children are not in Russia. And I think for reasons that any of our listeners will perfectly understand. But as for those of us who are the public faces of the Russian opposition, it would be an extremely demoralizing and wrong message if we started leaving and giving up. That would mm -hmm. demoralize so many people around the country. You know, we know there are millions of people in Russia today who reject Putinism, who fundamentally disagree with the nature of this regime, with the directions of this regime, who want Russia to finally become, in the words of Alexei Navalny in one of his recent interviews before the poisoning to echo of Moscow, a normal European country. You know, he was asked by the presenter, what's your plan? You know, what's your opposition alternative? What do you want to do? Let's say you're able to come to power. What, what's going to be the plan? And I guess maybe the presenter was expecting some grand statements or, you know, some long list of policies or a big program. And Alexei just responded with one single phrase. We want Russia to become a normal European country. And for anybody who, you know, knows history and knows Russia, it's very clear what's meant by that. There's so many things, as you know, Michael, in that one sentence. That's what we want. And that's what so many people in Russia want. You know, before, before this whole quarantine began, I guess this was at the end of February, I was uh, doing a a public event in Siktivkar, which is uh, about two and a half hours flight northeast of Moscow. It's uh, in the Republic of Komi in the northern part of European Russia. And uh, it was a film screening, sort of film screening, and then a sort of discussion back and forth with, uh, with people who attended. Uh, and there were quite a few young people there in the audience, students mostly. And I noticed, sort of, I, I had this thought that talking to these young people in Siktivkar, you know, a relatively small provincial town in the middle of nowhere, sort of, I could no longer see the difference between audiences in Moscow and St. Petersburg and what we Muscovites snobbishly used to refer to as provincial audiences. You know, back in the day, you could always tell the difference, and I guess you still can in the older generation. But among the people who are 30 years and younger, there isn't a difference anymore because, you know, they live in the same information space. They read the same Twitter feeds. They watch the same YouTube videos. They use the same social media. Whether they live in Moscow, St. Petersburg, Siktivkar, Kostroma, Tver, Khabarovsk, I don't know where, especially Khabarovsk, of course, being in the news a lot lately. Mm -hmm. uh, but among the young generation, I mean, they're really different. They're really modern looking. That's the future of Russia. And for their sake, we have to continue this. We can't just give up and run and we're not going to. And there's a generational component to this too, isn't there? I mean, it, it, it's one thing in the early years of Putin, you know, a lot of people were it's saying, well, at least he's brought the economy back to a stable position. He's restored a sort of grandeur and a, a, a great power status to Russia. But if you were born when he first assumed office as president the first time, 
you've never known anything but Putin as president. You've never known anything but this system, right? You'll be, what, 20 years old now. You'll have come of age in, in a, a period of you know, rapid technological change. All your information is digitized. You're not reading newspapers to sort of glean or understand what's going on elsewhere in the world. And you can watch Navalny's YouTube videos, which get millions upon millions of clicks or, or views, essentially exposing the rampant corruption that has been built into this system and from which, you know, uh, all of these Siloviki and, and uh, oligarchs and politicians have, you know, enriched themselves. And so it, it does stand to reason that, yes, younger people are going to be the driving force behind this. I want to ask you this, though, because this is something, I mean, you and I have discussed this offline for years. Uh, we've worked together, Institute of Modern Russia, we work together now at Free Russia Foundation. And, you know, it always comes back to the question, well, what can the West which is now facing its own sort of internal crises, uh, not just the pandemic, but the rise of populism and authoritarianism in Europe and arguably here at home. What can the West feasibly do to help people like yourself and Navalny? And I don't mean, you know, you, we have to align with your, your exact politics. That's never going to happen. But you are dissidents. You are human rights campaigners. You are now victims of what looks to be very plausibly state assassination attempts, repeated state assassination attempts. What do you say to Westerners such as myself, and I would imagine most of the people listening to this, what can we do to help? You're going to go back to Russia. Navalny is going to go back to Russia. This could be the last time you and I have a conversation. I mean, realistically speaking, if they chose to take you out and they got lucky at the third time, I sort of feel helpless talking to you. I don't know what to do. I don't, and I think a lot of Americans who absolutely sympathize with your cause and your plight feel the same way or would or should feel the same way. We don't need any help. All we want is for the West to stop helping the Putin regime and its mm. cronies by allowing them to use Western countries, Western banks, and Western financial systems as havens to stash the wealth that they're looting from the people of Russia. You know, I've been involved for more than 10 years now in the international campaign for the Magnitsky legislation on targeted mm. personal sanctions, individual sanctions, that's a very important distinction, against senior Putin regime officials and oligarchs who are complicit in human rights abuses and corruption. That's, by the way, the reason for my poisonings, I have absolutely no doubt. It's not because I organized a lecture in Kazan or something like this. It's because of the work of the Magnitsky sanctions. There are a few things that they hate or fear more. All raison d'etre of these people who are in power in the Kremlin today and have been for the last 20 years is to steal in Russia and then go and spend that money in the West. Because all their bank accounts are in the West, their second homes are in the West, their wives and mistresses are in the West and so on and so forth. You know, the same people who abuse and undermine the most basic norms of democracy in our country, in Russia, then want to go and enjoy all the benefits and privileges and the opportunities that norms of democracy offer in the West. And it's astonishing hypocrisy on their side, but it's also enabling on the side of Western countries because they allow for this to happen. They let in those people, they let in their dirty money. And so this needed to stop. And this is why 10 years ago, remember it was in November 2010 that Boris Nemtsov and I had a first meeting with Senator McCain in Washington on the subject of the Magnitsky Act. And when the Magnitsky Act was passed, that's of course the law that provides for targeted sanctions in the form of visa bans and asset freezes for those initially Putin regime officials, then it was spread globally. So now there's a global Magnitsky Act that applies the same standard to any other authoritarian regime, uh, that those people who are verifiably complicit in human rights abuses in their own countries and corruption in their own countries will no longer be able to get visas on assets or use the financial and banking systems of the country in question. Boris Nemtsov called the Magnitsky Act the most pro-Russian law ever passed in a foreign country because it targets the people who steal from Russian citizens and who right. abuse their rights. And six countries now have the Magnitsky legislation. The United States, Canada, 
the United Kingdom and the three Baltic states, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia. But mind-bogglingly, there still isn't one in the European Union. And so to answer your question, what should be done? Again, we don't want any help for us. And it's one of the favorite gimmicks of the Kremlin propaganda that people like myself, you know, Russian opposition activists and Russian opposition leaders go to the West and we supposedly ask for help or support or for money or for whatever other nonsense they come up with. None of that is true. All we ask is that Western governments, Western democracies stand on their own values, that they practice what they preach, and then they stop enabling those foreign crooks and human rights abusers. A couple of weeks ago, I, I had the honor of joining members of the German Bundestag in Berlin for the announcement of the introduction of a German draft Magnitsky law, the first time this is happening in the German parliament. Uh, and then just a few days later, Ursula von der Leyen, the head of the European Union and the European Commission, publicly announced in her annual State of the Union address to the European Parliament that there will be a similar mechanism devised and implemented on the EU-wide level. This is very important. This is the most important response to these abuses, is to finally shut the doors of Western countries and Western democracies to these crooks, to these criminals, to these human rights abusers who want to steal and abuse their own people, steal from and abuse their own people, and then go and, and spend vacations and open bank accounts and buy homes in Western countries. This needs to stop. And then on a political level, I think it is very important. Well, better late than never, right? There's that phrase. And I don't know. And I was asking actually many of uh, my interlocutors in Germany when I was when I was there for meetings, because, you know, it really left an impression on them when the Russian opposition leader was lying in a coma in the middle of Berlin. And then people started sort of opening their eyes to the nature of the Putin regime. And I was asking them, where were you for the last 20 years? You know, when he was shutting down independent media and imprisoning opponents and rigging elections and throwing out the opposition from parliament, when he was killing opponents. Five and a half years ago, the leader of the Russian opposition, former Deputy Prime Minister Boris Nemtsov, was literally gunned down in front of the Kremlin in Moscow. And to this day, the Russian government continues to shield and protect the organizers of the murder. And as the recent OSCE report on the Nemtsov case stated, this is not the result of a lack of professionalism by Russian law enforcement, but the result of political will by the Russian government. That's a very clear conclusion there. Where were you all this time? But, you know, better late than never. And I hope there is that result now to have that mechanism enacted. But there should be consequences also on the political level. Putin will not be in power forever. Nothing is forever. And his regime is no exception. We've already talked about the tendencies and trends in Russian public opinion, especially among the young generation. There will come a time when there will be a democratic government in Russia. And that time will require Western democracies to open their, their arms and to help that Russia integrate into the community of democratic nations. That day will come. But for now, while Putin and his regime remain in power, there should be no more talk of any kind of resets, détente, rapprochement, whatever you want to call it, any kind of business as usual, with a political regime that speaks to its opponents in the language of poisons and bullets. And I hope that is a conclusion, a very obvious one, that is finally made in capitals around the Western world. I don't know what to say. Uh, as always, you're, you're sort of an inspiration, not just for, I think, Russian dissidents and, and opposition figures, but frankly, also for Americans, given what you've had to uh, uh, endure for your country and your family. I'm very proud to call you a friend and a colleague, and I, I wish you the best of luck. And thank you again for coming on. And I do hope uh, we'll have you back when the FBI finally does give you those 1,100 pages of documents, which might definitively conclude exactly what it is that you, they tried to kill you with. Well, let's see, even if they get away with the extended deadline, it's only less than two months left, so. Okay, well, that, I consider that a, a confirmation you'll return. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank and, you, uh, speak to you next time. Absolutely, take care.